0: Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at CleanCapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only Podcast. Today we're speaking with Dr. Lucas Joppa, Microsoft's Chief Environmental Officer. Lucas leads the company's environmental sustainability efforts and is leading the AI for Earth project, a five-year, $50 million cross-company project dedicated to AI research and technology in agriculture, water, biodiversity, and climate change. We're going to talk a lot about that program today as well as the initiatives underway across Microsoft to increase renewables and reduce their carbon footprint. Before becoming the Chief Environmental Officer, Lucas worked as a researcher for Microsoft at the intersection of environmental and computer science. He has a bachelor's degree in wildlife ecology and zoology from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And we definitely explore how we went from that to being the chief environmental officer of a a tech company like Microsoft. Um, He also has a really interesting experience volunteering in the Peace Corps in Malawi. So we look forward to the conversation. Lucas, thank you so much for joining me on Experts Only Podcast. Thanks for having me here. So I want to start a little bit about your personal journey to Microsoft. You've got a really uh, incredible background, you know, just both in, from a bi- bio perspective. You've got a bachelor's in wildlife and ecology and in, in, in zoology, which is something that probably most people wouldn't consider in a, in a C- suite level role at a technology company. But then you also went to the Peace Corps and worked in Mal- Malawi. So I want to back to go back to your time in college. What was your interest that focused you into ecology, and then how did you end up going into the Peace Corps?
1: Yeah, sure. I, um, I've i just always been interested in kind of the natural world, how things work, uh, not necessarily how things that people build work, but how the rest of the world, the natural world works. And um, I grew up far northern Wisconsin, spent a lot of my childhood just hanging out in the woods, wandering around, trying to trying to learn as much as I could. And I went to study in undergrad and started wondering or thinking about what I could, what I could do. I found out about a a major called wildlife ecology. And for me, that kind of seemed like a basketball player getting to major in basketball or something. Didn't didn't really seem like something that you should be able to like go and have a job doing. Um, But, uh, but that's what I focused on. And and that's really kind of what, what led me down that path of, of just, getting more and more kind of academically interested but also um more and more just interested in not just how the world works but how human activities are influencing the way the natural world works and that's that's kind of that balance that I've tried to strike through through my whole career and in, in everything that I've done
0: so you're you're in Wisconsin you're you're finishing up your your degree what leads you to the peace corps
1: yeah, what led me to the Peace Corps is what's led me to um, most of the great things in my life actually, which was my wife. Um, <laughs> uh, she, um, we've been together since we're childhood sweethearts and uh, you, know, you think that you know everything about somebody by that point, but we were um, getting ready to graduate and we we're walking down the street and what, asking what we should do with our lives after this. And she said, oh, I've always wanted to join the Peace Corps. And I thought, huh, never mentioned that to me before, but let's do that. And, um, and so, and we signed up and we got shipped off to Malawi, uh, where I had, oh, you guys out- were stationed together. We were stationed together. Yeah. It was an unbelievable experience. I'm not sure I would recommend it to, uh, every newly married couple, uh, <laughs> but, um, but it definitely worked out really well for us. And I had the opportunity to work with their department of national parks and wildlife. And it was this really incredible experience in so many ways, just culturally and, And uh, professionally, right, seeing kind of going from a very academic focus on wildlife ecology and conservation to a very, you know, boots on the ground applied focus on that same topic. But also the location in Malawi that we were stationed in was up in the north. And it was uh, in this tiny little village a long way back in there, uh, as they say, but really sat between these two game reserves, one was um, Nika National Park, a high grassland plateau with some of the highest leopard density, incredible orchid diversity and endemism. Um, just this really, you know, you're, you're in northern Malawi, but you feel like you're in the Lake District of, of England. Right. Um, and then 30 miles to the south, a place called Voaza Marsh Game Reserve. Which is your kind of prototypical southeastern African swampy, sexy fly-infested kind of game reserve, and so just seeing kind of the 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 way that diversity scaled there, the way that it influenced people, and then just the way that the way that people were um, embedded in the landscape there was was hugely eye-opening, instructive. I worked with uh, school communities. One of the things that was the most surprising to me of my entire experience in the Peace Corps was dealing with communities that of people that live on the boundaries of protected areas, but have never been inside and have never seen any of the animals there. Wow. And to just just see that dichotomy between how spatial proximity versus kind of real proximity to some of the big issues, it was it's that that barrier is one that I've been really interested in breaking down, uh, through, through my whole career.
0: Wow. So you, you travel back, from which sounds like a pretty amazing experience to the States. And then do you, you ended up at Duke to get your PhD. Did you get your master's at Duke as well?
1: I did not. I've always been kind of a impatient person and I just like, I just like to skip things. So, (laughs) um, so I was incredibly fortunate to receive a National Science Foundation graduate research fellowship when I was an undergrad. And what that allowed me to do, it was three years of funding for grad school over a five-year period, so it allowed me to defer uh, for two years and go and have this experience in the Peace Corps, but then know that I was gonna come back into a funded PhD research position. And, um, and so I went straight to, to Duke, um, the Nicholas School there, a world-class institution. I, and, You know, the opportunity to work with the faculty there is just incredible. I, I had the good fortune of working with a professor named uh, Dr. Stuart Pym, a huge mentor of mine. And I'll never forget my, my aspiration was uh, to basically go straight back to southeastern Africa and start studying wildlife population declines. And, you know, I started telling him my plans and started, and he said, no, 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 <laughs> you're sitting you're sitting your butt in this chair and you're learning how to use a computer. Wow. And it was like, well, I mean, I'm, I know how to use a computer, you know, like, um, uh, but he meant kind of use a computer in the way that I hope everybody is motivated. Everybody in the environmental space is will be at least motivated to use a computer moving forward. He meant the fundamentals of computer science, right? programming of the statistics that enable you to use those other areas to pursue more advanced forms of machine learning. And, uh, and so I did, I was the only person in the lab, uh, to never do any field work. And, Stuart's perception was I'd already done enough field work in my life, uh, and now was the time to do some some lab and some computer work. And you know, I'll never, you know, I can't be more grateful for for that mentorship because it's what got me not just able to have the career that I'm having now, but it's what ultimately allowed me to pursue the answers to all the scientific questions I actually had. Because the questions I wanted to know were super diverse. Everything from I think one of the first papers I wrote was called Do Protected Areas Protect? You know, super basic questions. Like yeah. when challenging we, the basics though. Yeah, yeah. but challenge and and to ask that question, I didn't say does this protected area protect? I, I wanted to ask the bigger question, do protected areas protect? And for that, you need to ask that globally. And you have to be able to do things like do global analyses of deforestation against global databases of protected areas. you can 't do any of that without computers. I also was interested in how ecosystems work, food webs, uh, the ecological networks and the graph theory and the mathematics behind extinction cascades all of that extremely numerical and computationally intensive, and so ultimately, I think. That mentorship not just you know allowed me to increase my skills, but it significantly advanced my career, and it significantly advanced the science that I was able to pursue.
0: So, why was you know I I could understand why you were interested in that. In the flip, when you ended up going to Microsoft and doing research on some of these issues, what was their interest in it? I mean, this would be this seems probably to people so out of left field for why Microsoft would be looking into these issues. So, why would they bring on? Someone with your background to do research into uh, biodiversity, for instance.
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple different reasons, and and but I but I would say I was equally surprised. Uh, I was not planning on uh, joining Microsoft straight out of my degree, right. and you know I had the incredible good fortune, though, of of doing so and joining Microsoft Research, which is this pure blue sky corporate research lab that just you know lets you basically pursue whatever you're passionate about and. I would say that they they allowed me to do that uh, from for for several reasons. One, I think they're you know if you if you take a look at the field of statistics, uh, you quickly realize that a lot of the world's leading statisticians at some point found their way through biology or ecology. Hmm. Fisher and Mende- you know these guys, Reverend Bayes, you know the the big the big areas that they were concerned on were often biological in nature. Ecology and conservation biology has always been a field that's out there pushing the limits of statistics and computing because it's really hard. It's not, well, I'm not saying it's not hard to do statistics and computing in a computer lab, but it's a lot harder out in the woods. And so there was that expectation of, hey, these are really hard problems. There was also an awareness that you allow people to work on what they're passionate about and you get way more out of them than if you make them work on the things that you think are important. And the modeling approaches that I was using were generally applicable to many other problems. I think it's something that Microsoft is very good at taking this big picture approach of say, right. of separating out the what you're working on and why you're working on it, <laughs> Right. And, uh, and then the third thing, I think I just wrap it all up in the same reason that we continue to work on this. You're talking about environmental data, environmental science, and computer science. And by definition, you're talking about big data, big compute, and a big societal challenge. That just obviously sums up to a big opportunity for a company like Microsoft in the sector that we're in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about that. So when, outside of the sort of ecological work you're doing, Microsoft's done over 35 years of research into AI, and you're going to sort of seek opportunities to connect resources and expand sustainability efforts to fight climate change through AI. And you uh, sort of fathered the AI for Earth initiative there. Can you talk about uh, what AI for Earth is and sort of how did you come up with that idea?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think AI for Earth is really just a culmination of the decade of investments that Microsoft and Microsoft Research had put into this space. It was really an acknowledgment that it was time to take what we'd been working on out of the lab and 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 um, into the company proper. Uh, it was when I decided to uh, leave Microsoft Research was to go and lead this new program. And and it was driven by this awareness that Microsoft was increasingly shifting towards taking advantage of this 35 years of investment in AI that, it's, that it had made and really putting that front and center in all of our business, all of our products and services. And I thought, this seems like a fantastic time. And one of my mentors and my manager at the time is um, one of a kind of world-renowned uh, leader in the field of AI, uh, Dr. Eric Horvitz. And, and he kind of sat me down and said, now would be a perfect time to um, to tell the company what we should be doing here, and so I wrote this little memo called AI for Earth, arguing that Microsoft should be directing a lot of its AI research and technologies into the four areas of agriculture, water, biodiversity, and climate change, that those represent the big problems, big environmental problems for society. And if we are building what we think to be some of the biggest technology solutions, then we should be actively marrying that up. So we, the company took that out of research, stood it up as a five-year, $50 million commitment, oh. and, and I moved over as the first chief environmental scientist for the company to go and help uh, lead that program.
0: What what time frame is this in? you wrote the memo. Uh,
1: well, now you're now you're getting to one of my weaknesses. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which I'm trying to do math over dates, um, but I, I think it was about two years about two years ago.
0: Oh, about two years ago. Okay. So so there's a movement happening around climate and energy, and you sort of see the need to really bring AI in there. And it's amazing to think through the effort around uh, you know putting a memo together with a company like Microsoft. They're able to commit to sort of fifty million it's <laughs> so not a small number, right. To, to make a, make a change in the space. So tell me about like, you know, what with the initiatives that you're doing at AI to earth, you know, are, is this set up sort of for grants across the company grants outside the company Are you work, you talk a little bit about sort of the structure and how it works.
1: Yeah, definitely. So the, the program itself has three pillars, uh, what we call access education and, and co-innovation and uh, the access part is this is kind of predicated on this awareness that environmentally focused organizations are oftentimes some of the least resourced um, and least capable of, of um, using some of the most advanced technologies that the tech sector is putting out And so we have an active grants program the you know we look to make uh, grants available to access just our core uh, computing infrastructure. We also have, grants to help people take data sets and get them ready for machine learning solutions. We put it, we're putting in place grants to access uh, or to to get access to uh, machine learning kind of assistance. Um, And then we also just support the, the engineering of kind of end user specific applications. And I'm happy to talk about some of those, but you know, organizations that produce applications like, uh, Book and, and iNaturalist and Sylvia Terra, some of these organizations that are just really going out and trying to change the world with, with what they're doing. We, we support them strongly as well. We invest a lot in education because we're aware that just because you give somebody a new tool doesn't mean they necessarily know how to use it. And so, you know, most of the world's leading environmental uh, scientists and practitioners didn't graduate from the leading computer science institutions. Right. They, from the leading environmental science institutions, (laughs) you know, um, and we have to be clear-eyed about that. And then, you know, this pillar of co-innovation is super important. It's this acknowledgement that Microsoft has some of the world-leading people in all of these areas. And if we're not putting them to work on these issues with our grantees outside the organization, then we're not fully committing. And so, we've got a team of data scientists and engineers that we can deploy to go work hand-in-hand hand with, um, with folks. And, and I just got back from a team offsite the last few days, and I was uh, surprised to learn that the numbers that I have been telling everybody about some of our program growth have been um, significantly outdated. We now, uh, in the year and a half uh, that we've been in existence, we've gone from zero to 381 grantees. Uh, all wow. seven continents, sixty plus countries. You know, it's it's just been this mind blowing journey to be on. And and uh, I think one of the things that's fantastic about Microsoft and its business model is it's never really been about us. It's always about making our customers and our partners and in AI first sense, um, our grantees the heroes because they're the ones doing the real work. We're building the tools to to help accelerate their work and. You know, just just being able to take the resources that Microsoft has and to put them behind some of these smaller organizations that would never never have access uh, to to these awareness campaigns that we're able to put behind them, for instance, is just is just phenomenal. I think some of the you know the emails of of gratitude are definitely the best part of my day.
0: How do you find some of these grantees, and how, or how do they find you? Is there a way, you know, if if you're a listener and you've, you're you're trying to develop a, a solution that you think would be, uh, you know, would benefit from AI for Earth? How do how do they find you all?
1: Yeah, so it's super easy. You just visit the AI for Earth Microsoft AI for Earth website, uh, click on the grants tab, and we try to make it as simple as possible. The way that we tri- typically try to work is we offer. We we kind of operate this as a funnel system. We offer it's pretty easy to get in the door with a five, ten, fifteen, or twenty thousand dollar cloud computing grant. That gets you into the community, uh, the broader AI for Earth global community, and from there you start gaining access to more and more resources as we watch you um, hopefully succeed with the initial computing resources that you've had. And it's been really amazing to watch some of our grantees really grow through, through that journey. We've, we've, we've basically graduated a few uh, organizations in the short amount of time from small cloud grants all the way to um, larger infrastructure and programmatic grants where they're able to um, take everything that they're doing um, and offer up new services uh, to the world through, through our website. We're really focusing on, on ensuring that once people have the data and the trained models, that they're able to, uh, make those models available as, as services in kind of an application programming interface or API sort of right. a way. So, yeah.
0: Interesting. Is, now you've got a global background. So, you know, of those 381 grantees, you said 60 countries, you find a, a balance between the international and the, the domestic here in terms of, uh, where you're seeing sort of progress and opportunity.
1: Yeah, I would like to see that balance. I would like to see that balanced out even more. We do have we do have a balance, um, of course. But but for me, one of the things that I talk about a lot is diversity, and specifically geographic diversity. Because one of the things about environmental challenges is that they manifest themselves differently in space and time. And you know, so here, even here in the United States, uh, we're in we're in about thirty six states right now. I would love to see us get to all 50. Why? Because the environmental challenges that we're facing here in the Puget Sound in Washington are completely different than the environmental challenges that they might be facing down in Charleston or um, the Florida panhandle. Much less right. Latin America, Asia, Australia. And so for us we're a small team we yes we are a global um, company but we're a small sustainability team and so for us to understand what the problems are and how technology can be deployed to help solve them that means that we've got to be in as many places or as many spaces as as possible
0: yeah interesting so i, I want to i'm going to transition here from the AI for Earth initiative which is incredible but into a little bit into Microsoft operations and what you're doing for sustainability within your own operations, we've had other guests from other tech companies or, or uh, major Fortune 100s talk about what they're doing in their own facilities or data centers. And of course, I do want to get to the carbon piece in a second. But can you talk a little bit about how you guys are looking to bring renewables into your own operations.
1: Yeah. Well, last week, we announced what I think to be one of, well, the most um, significant sustainability ambitions or or, uh, commitments that that the company's ever made. Um, And and we can talk about kind of all of that. But one piece of it uh, that we announced is further progress on our path to 100% renewable uh, energy as, as a company, particularly around our data centers business which has um, you know, the largest energy footprint in, in the company. And what we announced was, was really two things. One, that we would be meeting our current goal, which is to achieve 60% renewable energy directly powering our, our data center business by the early 2020s. We'll meet that very early, sometime next year. And then we've set another kind of mark in the sand, uh, a 70% goal by 2023. And the thing that's really important for us, the reason that we keep putting these incremental goals out there is because it really helps drive those principles of of transparency and accountability for us. Because it provides this every few year forced check-in, both internally and with the external stakeholders to say, yep, we're still there. I think we've seen a lot of other organizations say they're going to 100%, but, but then it goes kind of radio silent. Yep. Um, and, and for us, it's really important to hold ourselves accountable and to be transparent with everybody on this issue. And um,
0: Yeah, and those and incremental steps are huge. I mean, you have companies that will set like 20, 40 goals, but you know, no one's going to be tracking <laughs> over the next 20 years how you're going to get there. Uh, it's right. clearly as saying, "This two years we've done X. How, how are you procuring that renewables? Are, do you guys have a shop that focuses on doing power purchase agreements? Or are you sort of outsourcing some of that? How does Microsoft sort of pursue that?
1: We do. I think you know this team is one of the most amazing teams that I get to work with inside Microsoft. I think um, my colleague, Brian Janice leads our energy procurement team. And he and, and his team are just kind of whiz kids, really, I think, when it comes to direct power purchase agreements, making sure the finances work, uh, making sure all of this stuff is cost competitive. Making a def, you know a, a win win for for the company something where we are we're, we're not just you know doing this because people expect us to but we're doing it because it's actually helping our business right um, you know get the types of energy in the and and the stable types of energy and the long term contracts that we need I'm not an energy expert myself. Um, which is, uh, which is why the company has been able to go so far so fast, I think, because they, yeah. they haven't
0: <laughs> required me to actually do it. Um, well, it's, it's amazing. And, and, you know, that progress, especially when you're talking data centers, which are such energy, energy hogs to have, you know, goals like 70% are, are, in, are really important. And I know there's a lot of folks in the industry today looking at, you know, the sort of the corporate procurement side of this as, you know, as big as any utility that's out there today, when you start to put together the size of these companies making massive, massive, massive acquisitions.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that people, (laughs) we have another goal uh, that's complementary to our renewable energy goals, and it's to reduce our overall carbon emissions by 75% by 2030. And that's compared to a 2013 baseline. And that sounds impressive in and of itself, I think, you know, 75% by 2030 by you know comparing ourselves to 2013 what that hides is the incredible increase in load that we're taking right the growth that we're undergoing so we've got basically hyperscale growth and we're trying to drive hyperscale reductions in carbon and that's why i i say you know what what brian and that energy team have been able to do is just so incredible because um because it's not just about procuring real energy in a static world. It's about producing, re- procuring renewable energy in an in- exceptionally increasing world.
0: Is part of that a- initiative to reduce the carbon footprint, is that where the internal carbon fee, and I want you to talk a little bit about what that looks like, but when I was serving at the White House, we actually had you know teams from Microsoft come in specifically, because we were trying to study that to figure out how to try to implement a similar thing across the federal footprint. Can you talk a little bit about what that Uh, initiative does and and sort of how it's managed internally and i know you've had some new new goals associated with it sure
1: yeah uh so since 2012 uh, microsoft's operated as a carbon neutral company and we can talk about the details there if, if you think your listeners will be interested but um one of the ways that we've supported that or the way that we support that is being one of the only companies that actually has had a internal price on carbon and this isn't just a shadow price or you know a price put in for planning and visibility this is a real price on carbon that everybody has to pay and it does and and it's been there to to help us kind of fund sustainability all up for for quite a while what we announced last week as part of this broader kind of doubling down on sustainability with a tech-first approach, as our president, Brad Smith, announced it as, what really led that was the the kind of the how. And in a company, you know, how and funding are almost synonymous. Right. right? And so the how for us, uh, in many respects, how are we going to get to this doubling down of sustainability? How are we going to invest in this tech-first approach? It was it's through our carbon fee and a near doubling of it, right? So what that fee is intended to do is three things. It's intended to ensure that we continue to operate as a carbon neutral company, that's as we're not, you know, moving away from that commitment. It's intended to accelerate our path to 100% renewable energy because every megawatt hour of renewable energy that somebody in the company procures is some fraction of a metric ton of CO2 that they don't have to pay for. Right? Uh, and then third, we we use it to raise funds to invest across the company in new technology solutions uh, with our in our products, our services, our business operations teams, and hand in hand with customers and and partners. And one of the things that I think is really interesting to kind of provide clarity on is when people talk about a carbon fee, you might hear you know some state bill or some national proposal or the ipcc and there's all these different numbers that people are throwing around about what the price should be and what you need to contextualize that with is what are you trying to do are you know an ipcc sort of a number is trying to move global markets and global societies for instance right in what do you versus what are you trying to do with that fee inside of a company well inside of a company what we're trying to do are those three things, right? And right. Um, and the price that we that we netted out at of fifteen dollars a metric ton works out really well in ensuring our ability to do those three things: to maintain carbon neutrality,
0: to accelerate our path to one hundred percent renewables, and
1: to invest in technology solutions.
0: Lucas, that's an incredible commitment Microsoft's making and has been doing now for you know closing in on uh, uh, on seven years. Is in in for a whole other conversation some other time, figuring out how to set that fee per ton. You know, I think we'll have a lot of dialogue, both uh, here domestically and internationally, as more and more policymakers are looking at, at those type of solutions for a broader policy to address the climate climate crisis we're facing. But I'm going to sort of step back completely out of your Microsoft's hat and go back to Wisconsin. You are getting ready to you graduate from college or even from high school. And you know, if you could go back and sit down with yourself and have a beer, what, what piece of advice would you give yourself?
1: Uh, yeah. Well, if it was in high school, I would have said, don't let your mom find out that you're having this. Yeah. beer with yourself. <laughs> Right. Uh, but I guess it's Wisconsin. So no harm, no foul. Right. Right. right
0: exactly. Um, the, uh, no, I it's gotta be in a Packers koozie though, right? That's yeah. It, that's
1: it, <laughs> as long as, as long as it's in in front of a TV show in a Packers game, nobody minds. Right. Um, I think about this a lot and the answer kind of, I think oftentimes changes day to day, you know, but oftentimes it goes something like, Ooh, you should pay more attention to your, you should take more computer. You should have taken more computer science classes. You should have taken more business classes. You should have done this. You should have done that. Right. That's kind of the, maybe I'm too hard on my former self, but, um, but, but, you know, my imagined advice really kind of often, um, rest in this. Oh, you should have done it this way. What were you? And I think ultimately, what I sh- what I would go back and say now is stop thinking about when this is all going to be over, <laughs> right? When you're going to be done with high school? When you're going to be done with your undergrad? When you're going to have finished your PhD? Because the schooling never stops, right? And when you're somebody as as, as impatient as i am about so many things but particularly our our lack of progress on solving some of these key environmental challenges that that we all face it can be really easy to focus on the just trying to hurry up and get done with the next thing but some right. of these things you know learning <laughs> for instance right. just never ends and i think that's actually one of the most beautiful parts of life it's actually what i love the most about my job and about my career is that it's that learning component is front and center of everything I do. And so I've definitely changed as a person. I think, you know, I would just say, I, I'm not your typical, I don't have your typical background for a chief, you know, environmental officer, a chief sustainability officer. And so, you know, we were just talking about the carbon fee. Well, that was a huge learning process for me. Right. Right. I've never put in place a fee before. I've never you know done all the pricing, et cetera et cetera I've been part of the science behind why we should do it. um I've been broadly supportive of doing it for for a long time but but it was fascinating. It's also extremely complex and and that complexity is one of the reasons that we're so proud that we're able to do that in,
0: inside microsoft
1: but but yeah, I don't know, just being less impatient and more yeah
0: <laughs> that was awesome. Lucas thank you so much for, for your time. Uh, you've had an incredible, continue to have an incredible career. And, and, you know, I sort of challenge our listeners to to check out, continue to check out the work that Microsoft is doing. And if you know folks that are good candidates for AI for Earth, make sure you send them their way. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you, John. It is a huge pleasure.
0: And for all of our audience, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Uh, if you have any ideas for guests, please submit them. I'd like to thank our producers and also the team at microsoft who helped to put this together Uh, it was a really fascinating conversation Uh, and as always i look forward to continuing the conversation thanks for listening in today's conversation find more episodes on cleancapital.com itunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you like what you hear be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review we look forward to continuing our conversation on energy innovation and finance with you